Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Hey guys, welcome back to episode 120 of the True Crime Couple podcast. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So today we are back with part two of the Bain family murders. Now this is an episode that is in addition to the episodes that we release on a regular basis. So there's going to be no ads during this episode. Instead, we would just encourage you to check out the sponsors from last week's show because this episode is really just an extension of that episode. And again, those sponsors are the Peloton app and Acorn TV, which you can check out by using code TCC. And as always, we will be thanking all of our new Patreon supporters who have joined us since the recording of last episode. So you have no idea what it's been like living with John this past week. All he wants to do is Google about the Bain family. I want to Google. I want to find out stuff. <laughs> Let me know now. I know. That's actually some listeners, too, said, like, they, it was taking everything in them to not Google what took place. Because there's a large amount of people that have never heard of this case before. That is the good but bad thing about Google and Internet, period. Nothing is a secret. I have. It has been a struggle for me. I walk around this house and I, the other day, actually, I tried to open up her laptop to like find out I, and then I stopped myself. So yeah, that, this is hard. I'm proud of your self-restraint. So I'm just glad we're here. It's Sunday, but I'm, I'm happy that we're here and I could finally, you know, I've made it through the whole week. Yeah. I just wanted it to be genuine. I want you to hear it when they hear it. I mean, I love that, <laughs> but it's also killing me inside. <laughs> Okay, so today I am going to play out the rest of the story for everyone and John. And then we're going to lay out the evidence and talk about like what we think. Like, what would we have chosen if we were the jury? Ooh, I like that. Yeah, kind of like putting us all in the jury room. I'm with it. So where we left off in part one, the bodies of the Bain family had just been discovered by first responders. This was following a 111 call that was placed by David at 7.09 a.m. on June 20th, 1994. So now the investigation begins. A detective was assigned to each room to ensure the integrity of the crime scene and to collect evidence. Each detective assigned had quite the job in front of them because not only were these crime scenes, but the rooms weren't really that neat. So it took them a while to kind of sift through everything. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't even begin to imagine what it would be like to like be jumping over boxes and trying to, and, and items, just trying to navigate through that hall, uh, the hallways. If I'm right, the first part we were talking about how just to get into the the one bedroom for where the mother was, you had to have a path, and then there was another path that led the other way. It's like, and that that second path led to Stephen's room. Yeah. And that was kind of the trend. The whole episode pretty much was how untidy the place was. So I can't imagine what it would be like to try to investigate that and yeah. to try to gather evidence. To try and process that as a crime scene is going to be quite the task, and it actually takes several days to do that. Yeah, it's insane. So the detective assigned to Stephen's room had it the hardest. Not only was Stephen's room the worst when it came to the mess, because 
not only is this not the neatest of houses, he's a teenage boy. So it was pretty bad. Now, yeah, the other rooms were bad when it came to the hoarding and just the general messiness. But the other victims had either been shot in their beds or they had died right where they were. So there wasn't too much of a crime scene to go through. But Stephen's room, it seemed like the tiny room that he was in. Because really, when you look at the layout of the house, Stephen's room probably was supposed to be the walk-in closet of the master bedroom. I still find that shocking. It's like we're dealing with the Harry Potter room underneath the stairs here. Yeah, it's a, it's a little strange. Also, like the privacy level of a teenage boy, it just seems uncomfortable. With no door? Yeah, just a curtain. So um, that fight that occurred in Stephen's room seemed to have taken up the whole entire room. Like the whole place was a mess, not just because it was a mess, but because there was a struggle. And that detective really did have his work cut out for him to try and do that. Many samples and pieces of evidence were pulled from Stephen's room. They included a pair of white gloves that had blood soaked all over them. Um, The right hand of the pair was soaked in blood and was inside out. The other glove in this set was not inside out, but it also had blood on it but not as much as the right hand of the glove. The gloves were found when Stephen's bed was moved. There was also a green school jersey in Stephen's room that had blood on it. Now, this is disturbing. Two pieces of skin were found on the floor. Oh, it's it's probably from the gunshot. Like when his hand got blasted? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Maybe. It does come up again later. Okay. The gloves are interesting because I feel like... You would wear gloves for fingerprints. Right. So I want to red flag that. I feel like there might be something more to the gloves. Like why were the gloves taken off in Stephen's room? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And where they were kind of like found under his bed, what they assumed was that for some reason, and we'll get to that later on in the case, the killer took the gloves off. And then because the scuffle took place, that's when the gloves kind of like made their way under the bed because the Stephen and the killer were fighting with each other. So, the detectives also found a lens from a pair of glasses. The frame that this lens fit into was found on a chair in David's room. Okay. And the other lens for the glasses were found right next to the frame. So, they're thinking, okay, somehow a a lens from David's glasses fell out and was in Stephen's room. So, that's the evidence that was pulled from Stephen's room. In Lenniette's room, they found a 22 shell casing and two live rounds. The detectives theorized that this was most likely because the gun jammed. It would be later revealed that Lenniette was shot in the left cheek, and then she was shot twice in her head, kind of like on the top of her head. So the first shot wouldn't have killed her right away, and we kind of know that she wasn't killed right away because... She had blood on her hands and a smear of blood, like her blood on her cheek was smeared a little bit. It was almost like she was shot in the cheek first and then she lifted her hand to kind of feel her cheek, like in shock, you know? Yeah, you know, that's a good point. And then she got shot twice in the head and that is, that killed her immediately. 
Yeah, because I mean that that would be the first thing you would do because you know you're gonna touch your face to feel for damage, and like you said, you're smearing all the blood all over. So, did the bullets graze the top of her head, or did they just penetrate? They penetrated into her head, but she was down in bed, so she was like the angle that the killer was was above her. The rounds she probably didn't even realize what took place was because the rounds themselves were whisper rounds, and there was a silencer. So yeah. she might not even have necessarily have known what took place. So she kind of just woke up in pain and she reached to feel her cheek. And the reason why she had the time to do that was because the gun jammed. So the killer was trying to fix the jam in the gun and then shot her again twice. But that means that she saw who it was. Yeah. And that would make sense for the ra- like the uh, very quick double shot. Yeah. You know, you fix the jam and, like, you're panicking to take this person out, so you fire two shots. Oof. Yeah. It gives you the chills. It does. In the room with Robin, the stock of the rifle is actually beneath a curtain, and a live bullet lies on the carpet by that end, like, kind of underneath. There were these really long, thick, kind of velvet-like green curtains in that lounge room where Robin was found. And the gun was kind of like half underneath it. The rifle itself had a live round in the chamber and its five shot magazine contained two bullets. There was another magazine near it on the carpet and the blood from the man's head pooled in a large stain like below him. The tragedy of what happened to the Bain family seemed to reverberate throughout the house. And those on the hunt for evidence were struggling to do their job. Confronted by the oppressive smell of rot and the sad reality that an entire family had been annihilated in one senseless act, the men found it hard to focus on the task that they had at hand. At first, it seemed like it was going to be easy. They were really all just collecting evidence for the sake of formalities and paperwork because they thought it was a murder-suicide. However... Very quickly, they realized in watching David that this story may not be what they thought it was. David was extremely distraught at the murders of his family. The detectives on the scene felt terrible for him, but they were not quick to send him to a hospital. Despite his crippling reaction to the loss of his loved ones, he would end up being at the house for three hours. They kept him at the scene, one, because they thought they were dealing with a murder-suicide at first, and two, because they wanted him to be there in case they had questions about the layout of the house or, you know, where something was, because the home really was truly hard to navigate. I mean, I think that's a good call. I mean, you you literally need a navigator with investigators to find things. Yeah, I mean, I do also think, though, like, keeping him there for the three hours is a little rough because you know say this was a murder suicide right and robin is the one who killed the whole family i you kind of feel bad that he was stuck there for another three hours like i would just want to kind of get out of there i mean that's true so it is kind of like bizarre that he was there for the three hours but because david was clearly upset and they didn't want him to think they were being callous to him Someone was set to kind of stay with him while investigators worked throughout the house. Those who were tasked with watching David did so in shifts. 
Sometimes a police officer would be there, and sometimes it would be an emergency responder. But they all said that David was acting quite bizarrely. They noted that he asked several times for his glasses. That's important later. But they had to tell him that everything in the house was technically considered a part of a crime scene, so he would have to wait until everything was processed first. Also, during the time he was watched, he went into those mini fits where he would kind of seem like he was losing touch with reality or going into a trance-like state. And a few people heard him repeat the same phrase over and over again. The black hands are coming to get me. What I am still puzzled about, though, is how that plays into all of this. Is this his, like, sad attempt to try to make it look like he's, like, psychotic? Or or there's something wrong with him? You know what I'm saying? No, I I know what you're saying. I want to be sensitive here, but, like, I just... There's really no other way to put it. Well, we kind of call this into question a little bit because we know the first time he went into a fit like this during his play rehearsal, it was stated that he was acting in his fit. So is he trying to act right now? That's a good point. I I feel like it's it's too early to say. And yeah. I also don't want to like kind of throw that. I mean, this is a person that just lost his whole family. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's that's what happens when he suffers extreme loss. I have no idea. Right. I mean, I, I think that it's interesting. Everyone who was watching him said that they felt like it was not not genuine. Once David would get himself like out of these trances, I guess you could call them, because I, I really don't know how else to refer to them, he would then adamantly insist that he had to like make his way to his university classes that day so he would like snap in and out of these trances and be like i have to go to school i have to go to school and they kind of had to like restrain him and saying like no you can't do that and i mean that i find to be a genuine response because you kind of you you are in shock if anything you know what we can call this it's almost like a tantrum mm-hmm. it's a tantrum and I don't know anyone who would want to go to classes after they just found out that their whole family's dead. Well, he's not in touch with reality. And I think it's just one could say like in favor of David that it's that's the mind seeking normalcy when something outside the realm of possibilities that you ever thought could happen to you happened. So it's kind of just like maybe that's his way of saying I want to get out of here. Here we could be seeing either a genuine response to what happened or a disingenuine response. And this is kind of one we'll have to save for the trial. Once all the rooms where the bodies had been found had their initial sweep, David was taken to the hospital and this was around 10 20 AM. So that kind of is the three hours that he was home with the, the investigators and the bodies. Next, the entire house is searched. So the first initial sweep and what David stayed for was them searching the rooms where the bodies were found. And now they're searching the other rooms in the house that didn't have the bodies there. Investigators found that David's room was the neatest in the whole house. On his wall, there was a large piece of cardboard that had five red circles drawn on it. And each circle had many puncture wounds inside of it as if made by a pencil or pen. 
So obviously they're thinking like, are these the five members of, do, do these circles represent the five members of the household? I mean, that is weird. What is he it, doing? It's a little strange. <laughs> Within his wardrobe, um, they found that this was where the Winchester rifle that was used to kill the entire family, he kept it in this wardrobe and where it would have been next to it was a thousand rounds of ammunition. It's a lot. It's a lot for only having a rifle to hunt possums and rabbits. Yeah, I mean, that is weird. But it could be just like, you know, I mean, it, it does seem a little on the side of like hoarding-esque in the house. So maybe there was just like a sale. It could even just be that he likes to have a lot on hand so he doesn't have to make trips to the store to buy it. You know, Yeah. sometimes it's a simple uh, answer. It's hard. But then like after something like this happens, it's something that looks a little sinister. Yeah, a little bit. In moving throughout the house, the detectives were able to see some movements of the killer. As they found a bloody sock print in the hallway, kind of outside of Margaret's door. They also found blood smears on light switches. And the blood smears on the light switches were found in Lineette's and David's room. There were also some blood smears within some of the doorways. And those smears were at shoulder height, meaning that blood that had been on the killer's shoulder transferred onto the door frame as he brushed past it. Now, David and Robin were similar of similar heights, so it doesn't really tell us anything about the killer's height. Plus, it could be on an arm. It's not necessarily, but it's where both of their shoulders would have been. And the blood smears that were found on the door frame at shoulder height, they were found on the entryway of Margaret's room, Stephen's room, and Arwa's room. Now, an interesting observation was made by detectives. There was a lot of blood in the house, so much so that the killer kind of tracked it through on their socks because it was definitely a sock print. So it was interesting to them that there were no bloody paw prints throughout the house. Usually when even just one person is is murdered or dies because of a fall and there's blood and there's a dog or animal in the house found with the body, there's usually bloody paw prints that accompany that because the animal goes to check on its owner or is curious and then walks away. But now here you have five victims and no bloody paw prints throughout the house. So it's something that they found interesting. There's obviously never an answer for it because the dog always stayed within the house of the Bain family, but it was just an interesting observation they had. But honestly, it wasn't anything too terrible because like it was just confusing to them, but it was good because sometimes when that happens, it covers up evidence. That is true. What I think um what's interesting about that too is that means that is it possible that the dog was taken out of the house before the murders were committed? And that's why there's no paw prints anywhere? Well, the dog was in the house when the bodies were found. So it would have ran around in the 20 minutes from when David came home to when he called. Plus there was time since the call and when police arrived. Maybe it's because two of the, of the family members were killed on the bed. And that's why maybe the paw prints were in, you know, wasn't tracked around the house maybe? No, that's true because the dog was found with Margaret. So maybe the dog didn't travel throughout the house and kind of stayed with Margaret next to her in bed, like next to the bed because that's where the dog was found when detectives went in there. So possibly. 
That's a good explanation. Another room that was of great interest to them was the laundry room. Blood was found on the wash basin, and the wash basin was directly next to the washer machine. Clothes were in the basket next to the top-loading washer machine, and the laundry detergent box had blood on it. Like, the person who went to grab the laundry detergent box had blood on their hands, but it was what's interesting is that the blood on the laundry detergent box seems to be mixed with water. So it was like somebody had blood and water on their hands, and then they reached for the box. To me, that sounds like an attempt to try to clean up their clothes. Oh, definitely was. But there was also blood found on a shower cap in the laundry room, a face mask, and there was a green towel that was hung up on a rail, and that green towel had a lot of blood on it. Then there was a bloody handprint on the washer machine itself. And there was also a little bit more blood on the side, like kind of smeared. Within the washer machine, there was a load of clothes. And within that load of clothes included David's clothes that he was wearing that morning to deliver the papers. And that was a sweater, athletic pants, and a pair of socks. Like My mind's racing a little bit. This is a very (sighs) confusing case. See, because right now, from what I'm gathering here, okay, let's just go on the basis that David did this. The person wasn't wearing shoes. They were wearing socks. Correct. So that would indicate to me that if David did it, David must have done it before he went to work. Well, that's kind of impossible because, well, not necessarily impossible, but there's a hole in that theory that David committed the murders before he went to to work or to deliver those papers. Because if you remember when the detectives first got to the scene, Robin's body was still warm, but the rest of the family was cold to the touch. Oh, yeah, you know what? You're right. Well, if anything, it would be an interesting theory because that would line up with the, the washroom and tr- the trying of kind of cleaning your clothes and well, everything there. Well, it's definitely one of the theories. All right, well. Definitely is. The washroom is one of the most confusing parts of this case and the order in which the events took place. Whether... Whether it was David or Robin, the order of events is very confusing. I f- yeah, I just feel like the socks, for some reason, being in socks, to me, is is just a big thing for some reason for me in this case. Because okay. then, is it that you're trying to hide the shoe print? Like, are you not wearing shoes? To you know, because then they'll just pick up your shoe prints. And they'll match to whatever shoes are in the house? Is that why you're in socks? Well, if you're framing somebody, wouldn't you wear their shoes? That's a good point, but then why wasn't that done? Huh. I don't know. You see? Like, I don't know. This is crazy. I like it, though. I'm telling you, this case really does remind me of that White House farm murders. Yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah. This is like New Zealand's Amityville slash White House farm murders. Yeah. So the police also examined the caravan in the back of the property. This is where Robin had been sleeping on and off for three years when he wasn't staying in the house that was located on the land owned by the school that he was the principal at. In the caravan, they found a live twenty-two caliber round and some shells, but they were very old because they had a thick layer of dust on them. But it does show evidence that, okay, he's got live rounds in this caravan so 
it does show us that Robin was comfortable using and firing the rifle as well. Okay. No blood was found anywhere in the caravan, but there were two books that were kind of next to where Robin slept. And one of them was a collection of Agatha Christie stories. And this is kind of like, I don't know how much this has to do with the case, but I find it to be very interesting. It was open to the story, Death Comes at the End, which is a story about a father who was believed to have killed his whole family. However, the plot twist revealed at the end, and I'm going to spoil this, deal with it. The book came out in 1944, so I feel like... Like, if you haven't read it, you're probably not going to. You might not read it. Yeah. Um, The plot twist is that the son was the actual killer because he wanted an inheritance. Oh. So I just find it very interesting that he's his, you know, this is art mimicking life here. Like this actually really happened, but we don't know who the killer is. Yeah. This, Creepy, right? That is that is weird. What are the odds of that? Mm-hmm. So now the police are thoroughly into their investigation. And because it's the next day and they feel like they've given David enough time to calm down, they wanted to question him. They were curious to know the story of what happened from the only survivor. And they hoped to answer the burning question that everyone involved with the investigation had. Why? Because at this point, you know, they thought David was acting a little suspicious and like sort of weird, but they really thought it was still a murder-suicide. So they thought they were going to be getting the answers from David. Instead, they kind of felt like, Nothing he was saying made sense. And he was acting even more strange. Yeah, I feel like if David is a suspect, right, I feel like his motive is very unclear, right? Very much so. Where and I whereas if it's the father, let's say, and it is a murder suicide, I feel like he does have more motive here. The motive is that he doesn't get along with his wife, kinda doesn't like his life. I mean, for some people, that's all it takes. And don't forget, if it's true, his daughter is about to accuse him of like molesting her for years. And all of that's going to come out. And if it does, he's most likely going to lose his job and his career at a time when he's also getting divorced from his wife. And what if it did come out and she told the family? You are getting very ahead of yourself. Uh, I know. You are just very excited for this. I know, I know, I know. I know. We got to lay out the evidence first. Jesus. Okay. But you but, but you are yeah. so right in saying that the yeah, motive yeah. is on in Robin more than it is in David. Robin has motive, David doesn't. It's odd that he is acting so strangely with investigators. We also don't know the inner workings of the family. Yeah. That's because true. we do know that like Arwa said she was scared of David, Lynette had said it. We don't know. Yeah. We have no clue. That's why I love this case so far. It's good. So here is David's story. So originally at the scene, David had first told investigators that he had returned from an early morning paper route at around 6.45 a.m. and then found his family. They took his story at face value and continued the investigation because this is when they had just arrived. But now they wanted some more information from David about what happened leading up to finding the bodies, what discovery was like, and what his family life was like. So at first on the scene, he said that he had come home, 
found his mother, then his father, and he couldn't remember much else after that. However, after being pressed about the 20 some odd minutes between him getting home and then calling emergency services, David recalled a different story that deviated greatly from the first. So they basically said, okay, we know that you found your mother and then your father, but if you came home at 645, why didn't you call until 709? That's strange. What is that? How much time is that? 25 minutes? 20, 20 minutes? That's about 24 minutes. Is it possible that you can kill an entire family in 25 minutes? But again, that's not what happened. I know. Because they're all cold, but Robin's warm. So their bodies aren't going to cool at a faster rate than Robin's is. They weren't killed at the same times. For some reason, I just can't seem to not think that that's a possibility. And and for some reason... Well, because your mind wants it to be, because it's, it's, it's guess, the obvious answer. I guess, because you know what, too? I, 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 for me, it's like, I feel like the, pap- like the paper route, the paper route is key. And the time of... The time from when he finds the bodies and calls police is a real big key of evidence to see if he is guilty or innocent. All right. We'll get there. We got to go through the the trial lays it out pretty well. Okay. So that will help you. All right. In trying to organize your paper route thoughts. I'm sure sure (laughs) our, our audience also, someone has to agree with me here. Those things are key, but maybe not. They're No, they're totally key. I just know that there's so much more evidence too. So there's a lot going on here. Okay. So now where we were was the detectives kind of asked David, well, there's 20 some odd minutes between you coming home and calling 111. So what happened? And when he goes to answer them this time, his story changes a bit. He said that when he came home at 645 a.m., he fell into his usual routine He kind of went into like autopilot, if you will, because he's so used to doing this. He said he woke up at 5.45 a.m. and left the house around 6 a.m. and that it took him 45 minutes to do his route, which would bring him home at 6.45. The detective questioning him asked how he knew that it took him 45 minutes And he said that he had the route down to a science. He runs most of it, but walked one street. He also knew where he was because he kind of had time checkers, if that makes sense. Like he had the same houses that he reached at the same time every day. And he said there was one woman, for example, who we gave the name of. He said that I always get to her house at a specific time. She likes when I put the paper right at her door and her dog always barks a lot when I do that. So she always knows when I'm there. So like you could ask her, he said, like, I know I was at that house at a specific time. So after he finished his route, he returned home. And as was usually the case, his family was sleeping. He said that sometimes his father would be up because he was known to be an early riser but usually everyone was still asleep by the time he got home. However, when he opened the door to the house when he got home that morning, the lights were out. So he left them off, assuming that everyone was still asleep, because usually if the lights were all off, he knew everyone was sleeping, so he never turned anything on. Next, he went into his room and took his shoes off. 
He was asked if he turned on the light switch to his room, and he said no. But keep in mind that the switch would later have blood on it somehow. It also, at this time of the year, winter in New Zealand, it would have been pitch black in the house without any lights on. So now David is going to say when once he gets home, he goes through his autopilot motions without any lights on and it's pitch black, which is why he doesn't right away see the bodies is right. what he's claiming. Yeah. He said that he went straight from his room, taking his shoes off to the laundry room. Now, in knowing the layout of the house, that means he left his room, made a left, and then the first left after that, which is the stairs, because the stairs are between his room and Lynette's room. So he wouldn't have seen anyone's body if it was pitch black. He said he then went down the stairs, through the kitchen, and into the back laundry room. There, he washed his hands. He said this is something he always does because of all the ink that gets on your hands from the papers. And then he put a load of clothes in the laundry and his on top of it. His sweater, um, his athletic pants, and his socks. And then he put on a sweater, a pair of athletic shorts, and socks. Now, I want to just make a few comments and notes here. If David washed his hands and then dried it with what he thought to be the towel hanging up, it he could have gotten blood all over his hands. Which would then account for the blood on the detergent box. Right, and on the washer machine and various other places. But if it was so much blood on the towel, on that towel, wouldn't you feel that? I feel like you would have. And he also said he washed his hands in the washer basin, but the washer basin was found to have blood in it. So if hands would have been washed in the washer basin, those blood marks most likely would have been taken away by the water. Yeah. Also, um, I can understand the whole not turning lights on and stuff. Like, even growing up, I mean, I'm talking from personal experience here. My dad was, we used to call him the phantom because my dad would come home from work and never turn a light on. My dad would come home late at night, just w- walk all the way through the house. You wouldn't even knew, know he was there. And then he would just go to bed. So, because he, he knew the light out of the house. So, I could I could understand how he wouldn't even turn on a light or fl- uh, flick on anything. Well, okay, I'm going to interject there. It does make sense that someone would do that because they don't want to wake up the rest of the house and they're being considerate. However, once he went downstairs through the kitchen and into the laundry room, there was no reason to keep the laundry room dark. Turning the light on in the laundry room would not have woken anyone up. The only person who slept downstairs was Arwa, but her room was on the other side of the house, through the kitchen, and through a hallway. You there, pro- yeah, you probably wouldn't. There was no reason to do all of that in the dark. To be honest, you'd probably have a better chance of waking your family up by your movement than a light being turned on. Yeah, I mean, well, think about it. He's changed his clothes. He started a load of wash. Like, why wasn't the light just turned on? That Well, that's why I'm saying, like, even though these are good ways of trying to disprove, um, you know, what was going on in that house, but at the same time, I just don't think it's possible you would know if you had blood on your hands. You know, you would feel it when you went to go grip something. 
Right. You know, I just, I don't know. It's a lot going on. But like I said, even though those are all great ways to disprove him being involved. It's strange. It's very strange. Now, of the clothes that were in the laundry basket besides the washing machine, there was a sweater that belonged to David that had a blood stain on the right shoulder. So basically all of the clothes that were in the washing machine didn't have blood on it because they had gone through the wash. So say the clothes from the killer were in there. They'd gone through the wash. But somehow there was blood on the clothes in the wash basket. And I think that's just because whoever the killer was was kind of all over that laundry room and blood just transferred places. So once David then went back upstairs, remember, he's wearing a new set of clothes and he just started the the washing machine. He said that he went to go kind of like wake his mother and he saw that she was dead. And then for some reason, he went right into the study and saw that his father was dead and that he doesn't really remember too much after that. And he called emergency services. He said he assumed that all of his family members were dead and he really didn't have any memory of kind of finding the other bodies, calling 111, the police arriving. Like he just said he was, he didn't remember any of it. And then when asked why he didn't open the door, he said that he was scared to leave his room because he didn't want to see any of that again. Now, it's also important to note at this point that when the police showed up, the clothes that David was wearing did have blood on them. His socks had a little bit of blood, nothing crazy, a few drops. His shorts had some blood and there was also blood on the back of his shirt. But his hands were clean. Maybe it's from wearing gloves. Well, the gloves were taken off in Stephen's room. But that would explain clean hands or washing them after you did everything. And like, okay, no, I'm just I'm just laying out the facts here. No, I, I love them all. There's so many missing pieces and so many dead ends. It's like, how do you even figure this out? Right. And later on, the blood, I mean, years later, um, this technology doesn't come out until 1997. But the blood that is found on the back of David's shirt actually um, and his shorts belongs to Stephen. But remember, that's the shirt he changed into down in the laundry room. Okay. Now, there was a lot the police did not know at this point. Because no evidence had been tested, it had barely been processed, and they didn't like that David kept changing his story around. They didn't like that it took him 20 minutes to call police. They questioned why Robin would kill his whole family, because remember, they don't know anything about the family at this point. But why would he kill his family, change his clothes, because the socks he was wearing didn't have blood on them, and he was wearing shoes? And they questioned why would, instead of him writing a suicide note, why would he choose to type it out? Because that doesn't show us who really wrote it because handwriting can't be analyzed. Maybe that was the whole point. There was also something else that was very curious. David had scratches all over him, a skinned knee and a bump on his head. Almost as if he had gotten into a fight. Uh, Yeah, the struggle between him and his brother. It's not looking good. So to say the least, they were suspicious. 
So the police called David in for another interview four days after the discovery of the bodies and three days after his first initial interview. They wanted to know some things. When the gun was processed, they found only David's bloody fingerprints on the gun. Robin's fingerprints were not on the gun. He had told them that he had been hunting for rabbits and possums, but that was six months prior to the murders, and it could be from that. Then they asked about the bloody gloves found in Stephen's room. David could tell that things were getting accusatory, so it was at this point that he asked for a lawyer. So while they were waiting for a lawyer, the detectives put five questions in writing that they wanted David to respond to. And this is such kind of like a badass detective move to be like, oh, you want your attorney now? So we're going to write the questions that we were planning on asking you and we're going to give it to you. Just to kind of see if he sweats. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he's he's going to be sweating. Um, some of them aren't even questions. They're just statements. And they're like, what's up? It's pretty crazy. It's intense. So here are the five things that they presented to David. A lens from a set of glasses that you've been wearing was found in Stephen's room. Like, that's just a statement. Yeah. It's like, we think we got you, buddy. That's what that says. I mean, that is odd. Did you tell a family member it could have been me? I don't know if it was me or dad. And what this is in reference to is that kind of after these murders, David is going to stay with his family. And he makes a comment to one of his family members when he's talking about how upset and distraught he is. And it kind of just, that's what what came out. And that family member contacted police. So that's what that's in reference to. Then the third question A piece of skin similar to the piece of skin missing from your knee was found in Stephen's room. Can you explain this? I would be shaking. If I had something to hide, I'd be shaking right now. Because David had really skinned his knee. And if you look at the pictures that were taken that day of like the, I mean, his, he was kind of like beat up a little bit. It looked like he had a bump above one of his eyebrows. He had kind of like, bruises and cuts on his torso his knee was skinned his knuckles were like really red like he'd punch stuff and um it looked like he'd gotten into a fight and if they were they found a piece of skin and he's missing a piece of skin they were kind of thinking it was like a skin puzzle there you know yeah so the fourth A computer message was typed at 6.44 a.m. after you got home. Now, this is the time in question. You know, they say that the computer was turned on again at 6.44 a.m. That doesn't necessarily mean that's when the message was typed. So I think that's something that the police kind of didn't know about or know how to go about figuring it out or handling it. But it basically is saying like, Oh, it looks to us like you typed the message. That's what I think number four is saying. Yeah. And then the fifth was, I mean, they they laid it out. Did you shoot and kill the members of your immediate family? And now David knows that he's now suspected of these murders. It's pretty, I mean, those five facts would just be thrown in front of you. Hey, listen, answer these. Get your lawyer, but. But this is what we have for you. This is what we want to know. That's terrifying. Yeah. 
The attorney that arrived for him advised him not to answer anything that they asked of him. And later on, David was arrested by the Dunedin police. Okay, we're getting somewhere. So now David Bain has been arrested for the murder of his five family members. The 22-year-old was stone-faced in court when facing his preliminary hearing. At first, he entered no plea, but later a not guilty plea. According to the family that visited him, David didn't seem to be having too rough a time in prison at first. Now, just to zoom out here for a second, all of Dunedin was shocked by these crimes that had been committed by this seemingly normal middle-class family. The high school that three of the murdered children attended was in a great state of mourning. Counselors were called in for students and faculty, as they also were in the elementary school where Robin taught and was the principal. But if you got closer, asked those close to the family, friends, neighbors, maybe even some extended family members, they were honest in saying that something seemed off about the family. They'd been on edge, and for a long time there had been problems in the marriage of Margaret and Robin. And trouble whenever the children chose sides. Then emerged the claims that Lynette had made about Robin to others. And Dunedin had a full-blown scandal on their hands. For whatever reason, because they knew him, because it was sad, because they were all interested in the details, the people of New Zealand were invested and curious as to what happened in the Bain house. What caused such a violent act? And did David do it? This was now a scandal, and everyone was watching. As David worked with his defense team on his defense, the investigators worked tirelessly to process more of the scene, gather, analyze, and interpret evidence, because they knew that the burden of proof was on them. They had arrested David, and now they had to prove that he did it. While both sides were working, on June 28th, David's uncles came to visit him in prison. The house at 65 Every Street was no longer a crime scene. The police had taken all the photos and evidence that they needed from the residency. The family feared that the house would attract looters, vandals, and those interested in the case, especially because the case was now making international headlines. So they had to hire security. However, that was getting quite expensive, and the house was quite literally falling apart. So the mission of his uncles that day was to ask him if it would be okay if they burned the house down. What? They wanted to do a controlled burn because the house was condemned. It was The family was working to take the house down, but they had been murdered. So now it was kind of like at a stalemate and then it was a crime scene for a while. Now it's no longer a crime scene. What are they going to do with this house? They were scared people were going to break in or like graffiti or whatever was going to happen. So they just wanted to burn it down. And David said, go ahead. Okay. Well, I understand that the house is not under investigation anymore. They're not, you know, trying to get anything from the house. But let's just say... That, you know, maybe the detectives are looking into this or trying to, you know, gain uh, extra evidence. How do you do that now? 
I, I'm just saying, because all, all of a sudden it's an afterthought. Oh my god, wait, we can scope around that house one more time. Maybe there's something on the grounds of the house that we didn't do. Well, how do you do it now? The house is burnt down to the ground. Um, yeah. I don't know how that's... I don't know how this was allowed. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, like, how? <laughs> how? Because technically the police can't make any choices about it because it's a private residency. And now David really is the owner of the house. I would just, as like a judge or, or something, I would put a stop order or whatever on that while he's going through trial i i I don't understand how that's allowed to happen Well, because the police were done with it they said they didn't need it any longer i I guess it is one way to kind of maybe get rid of some evidence i mean it absolutely is burn maybe he maybe david knows that there's something there that would totally implicate him 100 percent. what if Maybe there would be more of an insight on the one daughter accusing the father, and that would give more um, a, a clearer picture of what's going on. Because now, really, all it's coming from is David. There's no one else that can give you an insight into this family. Right, cause, and all of their stuff was in the house, and that was involved in the burn. So but you're I guess, right. Yeah, but then the flip side to that is, well, if he's already going through trial, he's in front of a judge and everything else, they, I mean, it's... They have all the information, uh, I mean, the evidence in front of him to convict. Right. So maybe that's why, too, that they didn't care because they had everything they needed. Well, I mean, in I reality, know. they had no choice. has nothing to do with them. It's more about looking guilty or innocent by allowing your house to kind of be burned down after your family members were killed there. And now you're being accused of it. Like, it didn't look good. No, the perception uh, is is everything sometimes. Right. And weeks later... You know, as the house is literally up in flames behind reporters, they're like reporting, well, the Bain family house has now been leveled and burnt to the ground and law experts kind of like were watching on, like weighing in. And they were saying that it was a bad move to burn down the house, especially because not even because it makes David look a little bit guilty in, you know, the court of public opinion. But what if there's evidence that could exonerate him, too? Also a good point. That That's that's fair. So they're all saying, like, every, like, lawyer, like, judge that was, you know, how they go on, like, morning shows as guests and they do their commentary. They were saying, this is a really bad move. And it really later is going to prove to have been a really bad move. It's a gamble. Uh, yeah. It's a for no reason. For no, yeah, for no reason. So David's trial began in May of 1995. The Crown had 80 witnesses testify on their behalf. They were very neat and concise in how they laid out their evidence for the jury. They centered their argument around three ideas. First, that there was evidence connecting David to the shootings. Next, there was a lack of evidence of Robin being involved. And lastly, there was evidence that Robin had not committed suicide. So they were very clear with their objectives and what they were trying to do. And juries tend to really like that. So what the prosecution says is that Robin had not killed his family and then shot himself. Rather, they put forth that David had killed his mother and siblings before his paper route, which he went on to establish an alibi. And then when he returned home, 
he hid behind the green velvet curtains in the computer room where he waited for his father to to come into which robin every morning when he woke from the caravan the first place he went was the computer room slash lounge because that's where he would do his daily prayers so they're saying when his father went into the room to do his prayers that's when david shot him from behind the curtain well like popped out from behind the curtain shot him and then typed the suicide note so that's how the prosecution is explaining the difference in body temperatures i kind of like that like i like where the direction of that theory and what he's being accused of and how that took place because you know that would explain why he was warm when it when the police finally got there once he waited 20 minutes to call them yeah and it would make sense that you would you would go establish your alibi and what better way than a paper route where everyone sees you mm-hmm. right ah uh, i don't know there's a lot of what ifs in that scenario though sure like what if robin would have woken up earlier than usual but, what if he yeah. woke up and didn't come in the house well we do know that he was a late sleeper no, an early riser. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I got, this is I, literally the opposite. Uh, opposite. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know when you you mean one thing and say another? All my brain did not connect with my mouth there. It's okay. Okay. But yes, we do know that. Yeah. But he was not in the house. Right. And if he was sleeping with a 22 silenced rifle, he wouldn't have even heard that. No, he definitely wouldn't have woken from it. Really, when the police kind of go through... The scenario of how people were killed, most likely the the last person to die was Arwa. And the only reason she woke up wasn't because of the sounds of the the shots, but it was because of the fight that occurred with Steven and whoever the killer was. So, no, I don't think, say, if David did it and this what the prosecution's laying out happened, I don't think he would have woke from the sounds. But it's just... It's putting a lot of chance. So that's the only thing that I find a little iffy about the scenario laid out by the prosecution. But it it seems to be the only way that things make sense unless Robin did it. Right. But you obviously you're going to go into the other stuff which might make this either good or bad. Right. I have the breakdown here now of the evidence that was provided by the crown to the jury in this trial. All right. Okay. Let it it rip. So, and this took eight weeks, just so you know. What took eight weeks? This, the, the crown's case, it was 80 witnesses. That's a lot. It's a lot. So first they're going to have testimony from the 111 operator who remember, I don't know if you remember, but in the first episode, they were saying like, yes, David was kind of acting extremely hysterical, but then he would kind of break out of his hysterics and easily answer the questions. So they said that seemed a little disingenuous. Then they're also going to hear testimony from police officers, first responders regarding the actions and behaviors of David that day, including him saying the black hands are out to get me. And this testimony looked incriminating when paired with people from his acting group that said they saw a similar fake fit when he was talking about hands being out to get him. 
And then there were corrections officers who testified and a doctor at the jail who said David also tried to do fake fits in prison as well. Well, so there's a common trend here. And it's not looking good. No. Okay. Now this is a big, big one. Remember when David told two of his friends at two separate times that he wanted to rape a female jogger that would run past his house? Yeah. How could I forget? Yeah. And remember he said he had a plan for that? Yep. Well, the two friends are going to take the stand. I wouldn't say they're friends anymore. And they're going to say what the plan was. And the plan was that he was going to go out on his paper route and he was going to plan everything correctly so he could attack her and get to the correct houses at specific times so the clients that always saw him at one exact time could be his alibi. See, this is why I said the paper route is key before, because it is. Because now you can kind of turn around and say, oh, no, this is all premeditated. This guy definitely tried to plan this, and he said it before. It is very suspicious that he said he was going to commit a crime, use the paper route as an alibi, and now a crime has been committed and his alibi is the paper route. How else do you refute that? That's bad. I just think the whole thing wouldn't have panned out the way it did if it was Robin. Correct. The whole thing would have been different. The The inside of the, of the house would have been different. Everything. This is very confusing. I do not envy the jury in this case. This is nuts. Uh, yeah. Okay. Then this is the physical evidence against David. A lens was found in Stephen's room that matched a frame the lens and the frame were found in David's room. The only two people to know to have worn those that pair of glasses is David or his mother. Now, David tried to claim, oh, I haven't worn those glasses in over a year. But don't forget, at the scene, he was asking for his glasses. Right. And he, he was very adamant about it. He wanted his glasses. Right. David had redness and bruising on his knuckles. A piece of skin was missing from his knee. There were scratches throughout his body and a contusion on his head. The Crown argued that these injuries had come from a fight with Stephen, as Robin had no marks on him, as determined through an autopsy. Well, I want to correct myself. It was determined that Robin had some injuries to his fingers, but that these injuries had been semi-healed, so they wouldn't have been from the fight with Stephen. Plus, let's not forget, and this is just a little bit of a side note here. Robin is a 58-year-old man who had been described by his co-workers and people who knew him as unbelievably thin, gaunt, not healthy, not active in any way at all. He was like a shell of a man. He was extremely thin, And, like, to describe him as gaunt is an understatement. Like, the circles around his eyes. He just wasn't... He wasn't a fit 58-year-old man. David is a 22-year-old. And Stephen is a 14-year-old boy who was, like, decent size for his age. So, if Robin were to have gotten into a fight with Stephen, he would have had more injuries. Yeah, and it would have been present all over his body. Correct. Also, 
On the rifle itself, the Robin's prints were absent, but David's bloody fingerprints were on the rifle. But yet we're still going on this theory that he committed suicide, Robin. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Stephen had green fibers underneath his fingernails, which matched a green jersey that had been placed in the wash. In the wash, in that load, that washer machine load, there was a green sweater, and that sweater matched fibers found underneath Stephen's fingernails, meaning the person he fought with was wearing that green sweater. Interesting. Okay. And I just want to dispel something here. In reference to the piece of skin that was found in Stephen's room, it did belong to Stephen. It was not David's skin from his skinned knee. Okay, that's probably from the gunshot that went through his hand. Oh, yeah. Most likely. And the rest of the evidence against David was completely circumstantial, anecdotal on how it had to have been David and about just kind of his bizarre behavior. And that was a lot of the witnesses that they called to the stand. But 80 witnesses is a lot. Well, 80 witnesses is a lot. And also, I mean, you got a lot of good, like, evidence. Well, I don't want to say evidence. You got you got a lot of insight from a lot of different people about him. Like, that's yeah. really important. Now, in David's defense, only three people are going to take the stand. 80 versus three. First was David himself. In his testimony, he said he had a great relationship with his mother. As he got older, it became more of a friendship than a mother-son relationship. Although he did find some of the things she did odd, he said. He then went on to say that he had a good relationship with his father as well, and that he never asked him or wanted him to leave the house. His father often went hunting with him and taught him how to shoot. Of course, things were slightly strange in the house because his parents were on the verge of divorce, but it didn't affect his relationship with either of them. He also said that he only expressed that he hated his father after the murders because he was angry at him for what he had done. But before the events of June 20th, he didn't hate his father. David also said he had a good relationship with all three of his siblings. He would not want to hurt any of them. Now for the evidence. David said that he hadn't worn the glasses that had been found in his room for about a year prior, and he had no idea how they got in his room. He said he didn't like wearing the glasses because they strained his eyes. He said that the green jersey that had been found in the wash was actually his father's. He had never worn it, and his father was wearing it on the Saturday before the murders. The only other family member that would wear that sweater was Arwa, because she liked that it was bigger and that and she would hang around the house in it. David did confirm, though, that Robin had been wearing a tracksuit on Sunday. And that was what Robin was murdered in. So what Robin was wearing on Sunday was what he slept in and was murdered in. So David saying that was actually really bad for him. Because it meant that... When Robin entered the house, he was wearing the tracksuit. And if he really did kill five people, he would have had blood on it. And he didn't have any blood on it. And he was wearing his shoes. That's a really good point. See, the socks and the shoes thing. It comes up again. It, 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 the ugly head comes up and, and, you know, we start talking about it again. Because it's, it's a big deal. 
something so small becomes a really big deal. Oh, totally. And these type of investigations, it's it's the minutia that, that does it. Yeah. David also offered some new information during the trial. He said that he had heard some raised voices in the middle of the night, just hours before the murders took place. He had been unable to hear what the yelling was about. So I think this might be him setting up or him, you know, setting up the like lineette situation. 100%. David also said that his story to police officers and detectives changed so much because he had been in shock. It was only after sessions with a psychiatrist that he was able to remember anything of what happened when he went into the house. And he said even though he was starting to remember, it only came in like snippets. It wasn't full events. He recalled going to see every member of the family and how he ran into each room in horror. And in reference to him going into trance-like states and talking about black hands, he said he just felt as if everything was out to get him and that his world was closing in on him. And the only thing that he could think of or like the best analogy he could come up with was like these black shadowy hands trying to like take him or hold him down. He said that's what he meant by that. Kind of odd, once again, to use that as a way to describe that. Yeah. I feel like a normal person would describe that that little, that sentence completely different. You know, if you felt like the world was out to get you, you wouldn't be seeing black shadowy hands are coming to get you. You would say something else. I think also David's a little... Strange? Yeah, quirky, strange. Yeah, I mean, that's true yeah. too, actually. In cross-examination, the prosecutor asked again about the black hands, whether or not David thought Arawa would leave the house, to which David replied no, because she had been heavily involved with making the new plans for the house, which obviously he didn't know that she really did want to leave. Um, Then he asked David about the injuries he had. David admitted that he did not know how he got those injuries, But he did know that when he was on his paper route, he didn't have them and he didn't have them afterwards. So he thought maybe it happened when he was like running around the house checking on all of the people like he might have bumped into something in, in his hysterics and he just doesn't remember. David also said he didn't know how blood got on his light switch. And the cross examination of David went into the next day. And it was a lot of kind of like tedious information, but the most important and kind of what the prosecution ended the cross-examination on was asking David if he knew how to fix the rifle if it jammed. And he said, yes, he would know how to fix it. And I don't think that's any like massive revelation. I just think he wanted to kind of like cross his T's, dot his I's in every way possible because he had him on the stand. The next witness for the defense was the psychiatrist that had seen David. He testified that not remembering what happened when viewing a traumatic scene, especially with one's own family, is completely normal. It's called disassociative amnesia. Sometimes, he said, people don't even know that time or memory is lost until it's brought to their attention. The final witness for the defense was Kyle Cunningham. Now, this was the boarder that had been living at the house on the school property. Um, Remember, and this is what the testimony was about, 
when Robin asked him, oh, like, would a 22 be able to shoot a rabbit? Right, I do remember, yeah. And would it be quiet? So that's kind of what he testified to, was that Robin was asking questions about a 22. The day, like, two days before the murders took place. Now, the defense team had subpoenaed the pimp slash client of Lineettes. Um, Their role really with that is unclear, but many agree that he was the pimp that was blackmailing her. So he is the one she told about the sexual abuse involving her father. So David's defense wanted him to testify because this would give Robin a clear cut motive. I mean, that makes sense. Um, Also, it's important to note that I know we built it up a whole lot in the first episode of this podcast, but during David's trial, none of the family history was necessarily talked about, um, nor was the deterioration or the um, kind of bizarre marriage situation that took place between Margaret and Robin. So during this trial, even though technically from an outside perspective, we know that Robin had two potential motives for killing his family. That was never, neither was presented to the jury. I mean, that's pretty interesting that that's not even put, uh, uh, you know, there's no microscope on that because that's pretty big. Well, I think what the defense team really wanted to do was they wanted to go towards Lineette's version of events when she said she was being sexually abused by her father, because that is going to be um, a bigger reason for a jury to, acquit David because now they've made a monster out of Robin and he's the man who killed five members of the family. So they're going to go with that motive versus this kind of like suppressed anger he had from an unhappy marriage. Okay. And being kind of pushed out of his own family because they think to a jury, the other one's going to look better. Right. It'll be, you'll be able to sympathize more with that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, because it makes Robin a monster. Right. And... They couldn't do that because the man who was supposed to come and testify that he heard Lineette say this, um, his name's Dean Cottle, he had been subpoenaed, but he never showed up to court. (laughs) Seriously? Yeah. So a warrant was issued for his arrest. I mean, like, would you show up like, hey, I'm the pimp? Like, you kind of wouldn't want to do that. Yeah, but I don't think I mean they can't can't put him in jail or anything for him to come forward with with testimony with a testimony. No, not for that. But they do want to put him in jail for not showing up to court. True. And by the time they issue the arrest warrant, it's it's like closing arguments had begun in the case, and then boom, they find him. That's just that's just really crappy timing. Well, technically, he could still testify. Because he had been subpoenaed, and it's not the defense's fault that he didn't show up. So the judge, though, said, I want to vet the witness first before we put him in front of the jury because he had a warrant issued for his arrest, and I want to know why he didn't show up. Makes sense. So when Cottle met with the judge, he was completely inebriated, and he wasn't making much sense. He said that he had no clue about the subpoena, despite the fact that it was handed directly to him. And he was, and I quote, confused, disturbed, and incapable of giving evidence. So he really did not want to testify. And the judge ruled that the man was not to appear before the jury. 
and that he was unreliable. And cr- not even credible. Well, now this is a massive hit to the defense. That was their side of events that David heard arguing the night before and that Lynette was going to come forward with the sexual allegations, the sexual abuse allegations against Robin, and he was going to lose his whole life. And that's why he killed his family. Say, I feel like they put all their eggs in one basket on one witness. Yeah. And this guy. Yeah. Didn't show up. And then when he did show up, he didn't show up. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. So that was a devastating blow to the defense, as you can imagine. And that's how the trial ended. The jury deliberated for hours, not days, for hours. And they came back quickly with a verdict. Guilty on all five counts. Okay. Right? So David Bain is guilty of killing his family. They believe the prosecution versus the defense, which if I were a juror, I probably would have gone that direction too, only because I just heard 80 witnesses. And then I heard three witnesses and they didn't even give me a motive. Yeah, I would have to be on on the on team uh prosecution. Yeah. Sorry, thanks. It's okay. <laughs> team, I would have to be. Team yeah. the Crown. Team the Crown. I would have to be. There's way too much that points to David and not Robin, even though at first glance it looks like Robin has a more like more of a reason to commit murder, you know? Right. Then David, I just don't the evidence and the body language and everything else just doesn't correlate to Robin doing it. So David was eventually sentenced to 16 years in prison for the murder of his five family members. Now, I know for those in some countries outside of New Zealand, they feel like that might be a light sentence. But in New Zealand, their justice system puts less of an emphasis on punishment and more on reform. So someone like David, who was young, right? I mean, think about it. He's 23 years old at this point. He has no prior criminal record. And there's not not even like anecdotal evidence about violence in his past. So they want to work towards reform. And they don't do like, oh, 146 years in prison. Like, you know, like in America, they do that. So they gave him 16 years and even that actually was one of the highest sentences that was kind of like doled out during that time. I mean, 16 years is still 16 years of your young life. It is, so. but you're still going to be out by 39. But, but then again, yeah, you're right. I mean, 16 years for killing five people? Yeah. It's pretty crazy. Yes. Well, we're used to like five life sentences. Like five consecutive life sentences. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So lawyers on behalf of David are going to file an appeal, stating the fact that Dean Codal not testifying hindered the defense. However, this appeal was denied. And it was at this time in 1996 that many innocence programs were working with David Bain. David had a big following that thought he was innocent. And these innocence programs were assisting his lawyers in like the appeal process Because they felt as if he had been wronged. Or even if he maybe had done it, he was wronged when it came to the court case and how it was filed within the justice system. 
Do you know what I mean? Like no, I because get it. of like his defense wasn't adequate. Right. So this gained the attention of Joe Karam. Now, Joe Karam, for those of you who don't know, was a rugby player for the All Blacks team from 1972 to 1975. The All Blacks are New Zealand's national team. And when I say the people of New Zealand love rugby, I mean that the people of New Zealand love rugby. And they have a strong sense of pride in their country and all that it has established on a global stage in perspective of the sport, as they should be, because it's incredible. And, you know, when you're a smaller country and you can produce such amazing athletes and be able to compete against these massively larger countries, it's something you should be proud of. And that's what the All Blacks are to New Zealand. Pretty cool. Very cool. And because of that, if you are a rugby player in New Zealand, especially if you're part of the All Blacks, um, it's a big deal. So having an All Black in your corner gave David's case new life and a lot more supporters. People were more open to hearing the case of David's innocence if it was being laid out by a national hero. And, you know, like we saw similar things happen in the United States, like when we're talking about like the West Memphis Three and like Eddie Vedder got involved like that. It means more to people because it's on the platform is there. You know what I mean? Yeah. And also it just gains a lot more traction that way. Oh, totally. In an interview, Karam stated that he was at a bar and happened to begin a conversation with a group of students who were working on the case for David's innocence. Convince me, he told them. And they did. So much so, in fact, that he flew to meet David in prison. Since he heard David's side of the story, he has been a strong advocate for his innocence. He was also heavily involved with the defense team on David's second trial. That's right. David was eventually afforded a second trial. That's crazy. See, because I think he was granted that second trial because of all the attention that he was getting because of this guy. Oh, 100%. You know, I don't think that this would have even come about if that didn't take place. No, that was a massive contributing factor. I completely agree with that. But the road from when Karam took interest in the case, wrote a book about it, and when David was granted a second trial, was a long one. 13 years to be exact. In the book, Karam was very critical of the Dunedin police force and their handling of evidence, the case, and David. They had been against him from the start. An investigation was held by the Police Complaints Authority and Police Assistant Commissioner to look into the handling of the case. But their findings were that the case was handled appropriately and by the book at all levels of investigation. In 1998, David's legal team applied for the Royal Prerogative of Mercy, which is when the Governor General can lessen a sentence or refer a case back to the courts. In 2003, the Court of Appeals held a five-day hearing where evidence was to be heard. And in May of 2007, the Privy Council, which kind of oversaw that five-day hearing, ruled that David had been a victim of a substantial miscarriage of justice. Now, this was not them saying that they thought David was innocent, 
just that his trial was not up to standards. This meant that the Crown was either to throw out the conviction or have a retrial. It was up to them. David was released from prison that same month, and he awaited a decision, much like the rest of New Zealand did, from the Crown. As he left jail, his supporters cheered for him. Shortly after, the Crown made the decision to retry the case. So why did this ruling happen? That is because the jury never heard about the deterioration of the Bain marriage in the first trial, nor did they hear evidence about the accusations that Lynette had regarding the abuse of her father. So now a jury would hear this, plus new evidence that the defense had. And that's what brings us to case number two. So what I want to do is go through the evidence presented at the trial and then read through what the defense said to combat it. Obviously, it didn't happen that way in the court. There was the prosecution side and then the defense followed. But I feel like it's a it's a great way to present the information. And this information has been expertly and beautifully compiled by David Fisher at the New Zealand Herald. His article on the case and others I have read are phenomenal. So I'm going to put a link to that article in the show notes so you could read through it yourself. So in this case, the prosecution is going to do something really interesting. In the first case, they laid out how they thought David did it. But in this one, they start by laying out how Robin couldn't have done it. I like that. Different take. Different, Different take. So based on the physical evidence that was found at the Bain house, if the defense was correct and Robin did kill his family... The following would have had to have been the scenario based on all of the physical evidence. So are you ready for this story? I'm ready. If Robin did it, this is what would have had to have gone down. Robin must have entered the home to which he had become a stranger in the early morning hours. If we are to believe that he had a 45-minute window to commit his crimes he would have had to enter the home just as David left for his paper route, meaning he was up and ready to walk in the house as he heard David leave the house. According to Robin's autopsy, the man had a full bladder. I know this is a little weird, but just roll with me here. Okay. It was determined that it had been full, like the collection had been from an entire night of sleeping. So he basically woke up and didn't relieve himself like we all have to do in the morning. You know what I mean? Yeah. This is also a 58-year-old man. You know what I'm saying? It's hard for me. And I'm 32 and haven't had a kid yet. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) I couldn't imagine. So even though he had a full bladder, he didn't go to the bathroom. He changed out of his... Well, in order to change out of his tracksuit, he went all the way throughout the house. He went downstairs, through the kitchen, into the laundry room, changed out of his tracksuit, took his shoes off, put on different clothes, and went upstairs. He then went into David's room, got the rifle. He found the key to the trigger guard in a small little container on David's desk. Then he went into David's drawer and got a pair of white opera gloves. He, 
notably, had a pair of white opera gloves in his caravan, but didn't use those. He used the ones in David's drawer. He would know that the gun had whisper ammunition and a silencer, so the shots would be deafened. Next, he went to Lynette's room, and he shot her three times as she lay in bed. Between the first and second shot, the gun jammed, so he had to clear it. He then went into his wife's room and shot her once in the head. He then went into Stephen's room. But the 14-year-old active boy put up a fight against the emaciated 58-year-old man. In this fight, Robin did not sustain one injury, but Stephen did. He sustained many injuries and had to have been shot twice. He lay dead on the floor, his bloody shirt pulled over his head in the struggle. Robin, covered in blood, had taken off David's gloves and put them in Stephen's room. Now, the the thought process here about the gloves in Stephen's room is this. They found various shell casings and live ammunition in Stephen's room. So what they think happened was this. Stephen was laying in his bed and the way he was sleeping, he, he must have been woken up by the shot in his mother's room. And he was laying in bed. And then when the killer walked into his room, he put his hand up and the shot blasted through his hand and grazed his head. And that's why there was blood all on the mattress. The gun jams. So because the gloves are so bloody, they can't unjam the gun. So they take the gloves off. And while they're trying to take the gloves off to kind of unjam the gun, that's when Stephen attacks and that's when the fight happens. And then they're able to kind of subdue Stephen by kind of suffocating him in his shirt a little bit. And then he's shot. So they're saying, so Robin did that in this room. That's a lot to do. Yeah. That's a lot to do. You know what? (laughs) I know. I don't mean to make a joke about this, but I think right off the bat, you could say that there's no way because every man wants to use the bathroom when they wake up in the morning. So Already? You're, that's Just, your thing? Okay, wait. <laughs> let me off. continue with the okay, story. Yep. So, Robin gets into the fight with Steven, is able to overpower him without getting any scratches on him whatsoever, but his son is looks beat up. He suffocates him. He then goes downstairs to Arwa's room. She must have woken from the sounds of the struggle with Steven, and when... Her father walks in the room. She drops to her knees and begs for help. And she's shot in the head and falls backwards. Robin still chooses not to relieve himself here, but goes to clean himself off. He washes himself off, puts his bloody clothes in the basket, and changes into his overnight clothes. He doesn't start the laundry because David's the one who does the laundry. He just puts it in the wash. He then puts on a new pair of socks. He puts on, he puts his shoes back on and he puts back on his overnight clothes. Like he puts his tracksuit back on, socks and his shoes. And then now he waits in the lounge, still doesn't use the bathroom. And they theorize that either he's waiting to kill David, but instead of killing David, he chooses to kill himself and write the suicide note. Either way, 
he types a suicide sentence out, right? Like when he decides to kill himself. And he says, sorry, you were the only one who deserved to stay. Then a right-handed Robin takes the rifle in his left hand, leaves the silencer on, which elongates the rifle, holds it to one side as if it were a pistol, like like he held, holds it to the left side, which isn't his dominant hand, and he reaches and pulls the trigger. He somehow avoids getting blood on his hands or fingerprints on the gun. Minutes later, David returns from his morning run. He bundles his father's bloody clothes into the washing machine, sorting light and dark clothing in the dark, and unwittingly places a bloody handprint on the front of the machine, not knowing he picked up his father's bloody clothes. He washes his hands, but manages to avoid disturbing other blood spots left in the basin. He begins to discover the bodies, and after about 25 minutes, calls for help. There is one thing. So the whole scenario makes it seem like no way. There's no way Robin could have done this. But then at the end, it kind of makes the laundry room make sense to me. Like it makes sense that if David just went down there, he didn't realize. But then why would his father even take his clothes off and not start the wash? Then what's the point of changing your clothes? If he was making it obvious that he killed his family by writing the suicide note, why was he making efforts to change and hide it? Do you know, or, or wear gloves? Like if you're killing your family and you know you're going to kill yourself in the end, why the gloves? Why right. changing the clothes? Why taking your shoes off? Why are why? you taking steps to make sure that you're not going to get caught? Right. You're going to go in there in a blaze of glory. Because you're so angry. Because you're angry. That's why this doesn't make sense. And the way that he shot himself, I don't want to say it's impossible. But I just don't think that that is a way that you would take yourself out. Even if you positioned it on the floor, right? And, And just press the trigger. Guess what? It's possible. Technically, not to be funny, but you could even use your big toe in the trigger and literally shoot it, okay? The problem is, is why isn't there any, what, he wasn't holding it? It, Either if it was on the floor or held up to his head sideways, like if you were holding a pistol to your head, your hands would have to still be on the rifle regardless of position. And when you killed your family. Yeah, and if it's on the ground pointed up at you, it's going to be in a very awkward angle. Same thing as if it was up to the side of your head. Very awkward angle to pull. Now, I'm actually, I'm glad that you brought this up because during this trial, there's actually several ballistics experts that testify for both sides during the trial. And at one point, they're recreating what happened. And um, it is a very awkward, bizarre angle. And not only... Is it awkward and bizarre? But it's his non-dominant side, which is what's interesting. Um, But what they theorize happened if Robin were to have committed suicide, that he would have had to either lean the gun on a chair that would have assisted him in in the reach of it all. um, And like the holding of the weapon while he reached for the trigger. 
And that's what they kind of theorized um, the defense did. Even if you use a chair as a prop to keep it in the angle that you need it to be to shoot yourself, you're, you still have to have one hand even just to pull the trigger. So why isn't that hand or finger or anything on the trigger? It's it's there would very be a print there. Interesting. That's why I don't think he killed himself, which is why I don't think he did this at all. Well, we'll get into that because we do talk about the evidence of the rifle. Yeah. So that's what would have had to happen if you were to believe the defense that Robin set up his son to take the fall for the murders. Because the defense is saying Robin took all those precautions because he was setting David up. Um, but what would his motive have been? So, like, Robin might have had two motives. Um, and that could explain why Lineette was shot three times, because he was angry with her. Um, or it could have been because the gun jammed and he was frustrated. But one of his motives could have been the revealing of the sexual abuse. If it was taking place, it allegedly did. Um or, like, why would he want to set up David? You know what I mean? Um, and what the defense was trying to say was that he was maybe jealous of how close David's relationship was with his wife. I don't know. Yeah, I, there's just not a lot of evidence to the motive in that regard. Yeah, I don't think there's any support. In the regard of setting up his son, I don't find there to be any evidence. No, there's no support. There's nothing to support that. Um. Now, even if the motive was there, right? Because Robin technically does have two reasons as to why he could be angry. Possible revealing of abuse abuse that possibly took place or the deterioration of his marriage, which it was kind of like messed up the way they were just kind of like, oh, we just want you out of here. Like it was messed up. So that could be motive. But the one thing that hindered the defense was all the physical evidence. So let's get back down to that. So again, this is the case against David and the case for David in the second trial, which was held in 2009. So as to the fight that happened with Stephen, the Crown presented the following evidence. David had fresh injuries when police arrived, bruises on his face, an abrasion above his right eye, and a scraped knee. Robin had no fresh injuries to his body. He would have been most likely overpowered by Stephen, whereas the tall, fit, 22-year-old David would have been more easily able to overpower Stephen. So they're saying more, it, it was more likely that Stephen got into the fight with David based on physical evidence and physical size. The defense stated that the injuries David had could have been consistent with running around a dark house in a state of panic and shock. They also said that Robin did have injuries to his hands, but just because they were semi-healed didn't mean he couldn't have sustained them during the fight. So that was their argument. When it came to David's clothing, the Crown said that all the blood on Robin's clothes belonged to him, and the blood stain on David's clothing matched all of his siblings. So what they're saying is Robin didn't have any other blood on him. The defense claimed that the blood was from discovery of the bodies and not necessarily the crime. So then we get to the gloves. The prosecution claimed David used the gloves until he had to take them off in Stephen's room because the gun jammed. Stephen had only been wounded in bed at this point, and that's when the scuffle began. And during the scuffle, the gloves were left under the bed. 
The defense said that if David washed his clothes that had been bloodied and tried to cover his tracks, why would he just leave a pair of bloody gloves? Which does make sense. If David did so much to cover his tracks, why would he just leave the bloody gloves in Stephen's room? Well, David didn't, though, because you also have to remember that there was um, his lenses and his glasses in the, uh, that he was trying to receive, uh, receive after the fact. There were other items in the house that were scattered there that he probably overlooked. Maybe the gloves okay. are, are one of them, just like the lens. Right, right. Um they also brought up the defense, and this is quite interesting. There was a speck of blood that was found on Robin's fingernail, but it was never tested. See, I would love for all DNA to be tested. I know. Let's just test it all again. Just, just do it. But they never were, they, like, they didn't collect it. Right. So it can't so be tested. They, they can't do it. They said that the glove was one of the biggest pieces of evidence, and they felt that it proved that Robin was trying to frame his son. That Robin specifically took David's gloves because he was trying to frame him and left them there. Now let's get down to the rifle. This is interesting. Um, during this argument, the Crown is actually going to use the speck of blood on Robin's hand against David. When it came to the gun, the only prints on the gun were Stephen's um, because he put his hands on the gun trying to fend off the killer. And David's, which arguably could have been from when he went hunting with the gun earlier. However, there were no prints belonging to Robin Bain. If he used the rifle to shoot himself, his fingerprints would have been on the weapon, especially if the gloves had been taken off in Stephen's room. Also, while there were, and, and what I mean by that is like, if the gloves if Robin truly did this and took off the gloves in Stephen's room, then he still went downstairs and shot Arwa without gloves on. How are his fingerprints not on that gun? I think that's one of the biggest, um, I think that's like the biggest piece of evidence that he didn't do it. Right. There's just no fingerprints on the gun. Right. So, you know, and then you, if he killed Arwa with the gun and then put the gun on himself or however, however the, that timeline was, his the, those fingerprints would be on that weapon no matter what. Right, and there would have been b more blood on his hands, and his clothes. Yeah. So, the rifle was found to have Stephen's blood on it in a number of places, and it also showed signs that there was an attempt to be made to like wipe the weapon clean, but still they would have had his prints on it from the suicide, and the attempt obviously was unsuccessful because it failed to wipe off. David and Stephen's prints. Now, in defense of David, Karam actually responded to this in his book, Bane and Beyond, where he stated that there was data from the US and Australia that showed that it's actually very rare to find fingerprints on a weapon used to commit suicide. Now, I tried to find these studies, but I could not. Rather, I would challenge the data used for the studies because how often are weapons tested for latent prints when there is an obvious case of suicide? So, like, in no way, like, that data has to be skewed in some way. And although I'm not saying it's impossible, if there are cases of it happening, I'm just questioning the validity of that statement. And I also think if this was a true statement and this case study really did 
show that then an expert would have presented that theory at trial but nobody testified as to that so i don't know if that's true plus wouldn't you think that every it's a case by case basis every single one of those like like to come out and say oh uh, fingerprints are not commonly seen on uh weapons used in suicide attempts or whatever like that's how, how I feel often like that's are you different. testing that yeah, gun exactly and wouldn't it be different from every single suicide attempt with a gun especially a rifle like i i could see maybe a gun if it's like being handled lightly but a rifle you have to position it and it's just a little bit more difficult i feel oh, let's not forget a rifle that has a a very long stock and a very long not very long but a long you know it's going to make a, a silencer is going to make the whole length of the gun longer. I also am confused about that because Robin was familiar with using the weapon. I mean, if he was going to commit suicide, why didn't he just take the silencer off? Yeah, because remember, Robin's the one that taught David how to fire it. So wouldn't he also, you know, of course he would know how to remove any attachment on the rifle. So the next piece of evidence is the handprint. The blood on David's hand is something that I find interesting because how did this happen? I could understand that he found his family and touched them, but rather the opposite is true. His bloody print was on the washer machine, so he had at one point blood all over his hand, but then it was gone. Now he's claiming that he touched bloody clothes and then washed his hands because he thought he had ink on them. Robin also had a small speck of blood on his hands, but we know Robin didn't wash his hands because his hands were dirty. Yeah. So the only person who washed their hands that day was David. And I don't know the the killer had to have had bloody hands because the blood, the gloves themselves were soaked in blood. You would have some blood would have gotten through and then you, the gloves were taken off. So, the killer had to have had blood on their hands, and the fact that Robin didn't wash his hands, I don't know. Well, that's why it seems to point to David right. and him washing his hands, which would make sense. Yeah. And, of course, the defense is just going to state that David was on autopilot, and when he came back from doing his paper delivery, he just touched things that he shouldn't have and washed his hands at certain times and was dealing with laundry, so his hands got wet, and that was how it got cleaned next is the bladder and i know this is strange <laughs> um but the prosecution is saying that it's more likely that a man who had a full bladder would have relieved himself like or would have relieved himself shortly like throughout the process at some point especially like if if robin bain's mission was to kill his whole family after he killed them he most likely would have went to the bathroom but he didn't so what the prosecution is saying, it's more likely that the 58-year-old man held it because he was just going to pray really quick in the lounge and then go use the bathroom. But he was shot when he went to the lounge. The defense wrote this off as a silly aspect of the case, and they stated in high-stress situations, sometimes one forgets to use the bathroom, which is also true. Yeah. Now, the next one is pretty interesting. Um... This is the gurgling of Leniette, and this is based on the testimony of David in the first trial. He said that when he had gone to Leniette's body, he heard her gurgling. 
The prosecution now claimed that this would have been impossible unless David had been there between the first and second shots, because after that she was instantly dead. The defense claimed that it was normal for a body to make sounds after death, which is true. That must be so eerie. Yeah. Um, Finally, um, well, not finally, but we get to that footprint. So the bloody footprint outside of Margaret's room um, was analyzed. And based on the pictured measurements, they could have belonged to either David or Robin. Both sides presented witnesses as to whose footprint it could have been more than the others. However, nothing could have been retested with all the new technology we have now because they burned the house down. So that sucks. Yes. <laughs> See, once again, after the fact, oh, yeah, we don't need evidence. Well, maybe we do. Well, too bad. House is gone. Yep. Finally, suicide with the rifle. It is possible, but difficult, especially with a non-dominant hand and a silencer on. If everyone was dead, why not just take the silencer off? Seven experts between the two sides testified about the gun and whether or not Robin had a contact wound from the gun or it was further apart. Both sides presented evidence about a contact wound or not a contact wound. So that was kind of a stalemate. One final piece of evidence was a bloody fingerprint on the rifle. Now, this is kind of very interesting. Remember David's bloody fingerprints on the rifle? Yeah. That blood was tested, and it was animal blood. It was animal blood on the rifle? Yes. There were bloody fingerprints on the rifle. And when it was tested, it was animal blood. And remember, David said the last time I used it was when I went hunting for rabbits and possums and they determined it was animal blood so even david's prints were considered to be from when he went hunting oh my gosh this is crazy this whole thing is crazy with this so basically neither david or robin's prints were on the gun which now even makes it harder about who pulled the trigger here Mm -hmm. this is insane i don't even know what to think anymore (laughs) When I thought I knew. Now you don't. Now I'm just confused. So this seems to kind of not look entirely good for David. But there was one problem for the crown. The prosecution. Their scenario didn't make sense either. So it doesn't make sense that Robin did it. And it doesn't make sense that David did it. Because if you're trying to claim that David was the killer, then the most common sense scenario was the one that you said at the beginning of this episode, that he killed his whole family, went on the paper route, or went on the paper route, returned, killed his whole family, and then called emergency services. But that's not possible because Robin's body was still warm. He had to have died a lot later than the other members of the family, closer to when police arrived. So the prosecution had to put forward another scenario. And, you know, this was the scenario that we talked about already, that David woke up at 545, killed his mother and siblings in an unknown order. He then put his clothes in the washer machine, maybe took a shower, left to do his paper route, rushed through it, and then came home at 640, waited for Robin to walk in for his prayers, and then shoot him. 
He then wrote the sentence, made it look like a suicide attempt. But again, that was all dependent on Robin waking at a very specific time. So that's even troubling too, you know? So in their closing, the prosecution wrapped that scenario in a bow and gave it to the jury. And the defense said it was really more likely than not Robin, the one who snapped. Like, Robin is the only one with motive, and that's what they're going to drive home. So after a 12-week trial, it was now up to a jury. What would you have said, John? Oh, man. You know, I still think David did it. So you would have said I. I guilty. S- yeah, I would have said he's guilty. I think David did it still. Even after all the new evidence that we got, for some reason, I just think he did. Okay. The jury deliberated for five hours and 50 minutes. David was not guilty. I mean, I could understand how hard it would be to make that call, but I don't know. I mean, like, I understand motive plays a big part in how, and, and you know, how the follow-up and how crimes are committed, but, like... Why is it so hard to believe that someone can just have an, a random act of, of rage or a random act of just, like, snapping and just doing it? Because people don't want to think that that can happen. But yet it does all the time around the world. No, it does. You're right. You know, so why does, why are the, why does there always have to be motive? That's all I, that's all I can say. people like when there's motive. Of course, because it's, it's simple and easy to follow. Right. But not everything is cut and dry that way. So why, you know, why can't it just be a random act of violence against his own family? It's very complicated. It is. What about you? What do you think? Oh, no, don't turn this on me. I'm doing it. I'm turning it right on you. (laughs) Um, I think the things that make me question everything, there's no reason for Robin to frame his son, not one that we've been given. So... I don't think that he was trying to frame David here. And I can't picture him going downstairs, changing out of his track suit, taking off his shoes, killing his family, and then going back downstairs and changing back into his clothes. And then the lack of blood on him because he didn't wash his hands. It just, it makes me feel like it wasn't Robin. Right, because like we said earlier, if you know that what you're about to go do, you don't care about hiding anything. You're just going to go in there and take them out one by one or however. Right. You're not, it's, it's all rage-based. You know what I mean? You're not going to go and change your clothes. And I think the reason why there are no prints on the rifle is they did say, oh, there were attempts to, to wash like or wipe the prints off. I think the prints were wiped off of that rifle. So we were never going to know. Yeah. But he's not guilty. So now don't forget at this point, he was sentenced to 16 years, but he had served 13 years. Right. So pretty much his entire sentence. So he got 13. He got he got out three years earlier than he was supposed to. But on top of that, he was awarded nine hundred and fifty thousand dollars in recognition of time involved and expenses incurred. However, he was not eligible for additional compensation because you know how sometimes you get compensated if it was a wrongful conviction? Yeah. That didn't happen here because, and this is what a judge stated, he was found innocent based solely on a balance of probabilities 
and not true evidence of innocence. Okay. So he was only given the money that, you know, the money that he most likely would have made in 13 years and what he had to pay for because he's got to pay his attorneys. That is true. So in 2014, uh, five years after he was released, David Bain got married to a school teacher. A lot of teachers in this story. He changed his name and he now has two kids. Since his release, he has not gotten in trouble with the law. And... Are you ready for this? Yep. Because they no longer needed it. In 2017, the Dunedin police returned to David Bain the Winchester rifle that killed his family. Whoa. (laughs) That's creepy. Yeah. That's creepy. I mean, this case is nuts. That was a long one. Yeah. I mean, it's great that, uh, I mean, I guess it's great that, like, he's not... He's not in trouble with the law any further. That's cool and all, but I don't know. I just think that a lot of the evidence in this case points to him having involvement. You know, to what capacity, I have no idea. I know there's a lot of theories out there, but I think the biggest thing is I just, I don't see the dad accusing, I mean, I'm setting up his son, and I just don't see him doing all those things. Right. No, I agree with you. I also hope we got this case right and the country of New Zealand is happy with us. Me too. Because this, this was a lot. This was a heavy hitter and coming, you know, as an outsider, it's hard to kind of get into and get the feel for the country and what people think. But this is like a polarizing case in, in New Zealand. A lot of people feel one way. A lot of people feel the other way. And it's it's highly controversial. So it was definitely an interesting one to cover. And I think this... Prior to this, on Patreon, we did a three-parter on Israel Keys. Yeah. That was our longest, and now this is now, it has surpassed. Yeah, this is definitely our longest case. Um, But before we go, we do want to thank our new patrons who are supporting us on Patreon. We want to thank you so much. It is so cool to have these many people sign up in just one week. It is amazing. We hope you're enjoying all of your episodes and, you know, you're liking that extra true crime couple time. So we want to thank Caitlin and Leah Rubio, Lil Kitten, Sarah Griffs, Helen Souza, Jamie Fidor, Rachel, Poppy Gale, Adorkable Sars, Chelsea Wayarski, Marsha Peterson, Laura Alto Satala, Jonathan Stevens, Chloe Eggleston, Erica Ornalis, Susan Upter Pledge, and Kristen Moo from $10 a month to a yearly subscription, and William Clark. So thank you guys so much for joining Patreon, and again, hope you're enjoying it. And that's it. That is a wrap on the Bane case. That is exhausting. And after this one, I need two glasses of wine. <laughs> I'm glad we wrapped it up, though. Yeah. <laughs> In two parts, we did it. We got through it. And I, I think that we did this justice. And I really hope everyone enjoys it. And I hope you guys tell us what you think. Yes. Guilty or not guilty. Bye, guys. Take care, guys. <laughs>